Amen. All right. So upon thinking on uh, what to preach on in uh, Tom's absence, I could think of no greater topic and no greater passage, and I, and I stress that most of you will agree, agree with me on this, than to preach on the topic of the cross, the, the theology of the cross. What do we believe about the cross? What do we mean when we say that Jesus has died for our sins? These are the sort of questions that we're going to be answering here this evening. It is the nature of what saves us. It is the substance of what saves us. As Keith was talking about earlier, about how we're a church that loves the mission, loves evangelism, loves each other and wants to be with each other in unity and in fellowship. We only do this because of the cross, because of getting the cross right and getting the theology of the cross right. So like he said, open your Bibles now to first John chapter 2, which is where we've been, um, where, where I've been sort of breaking down through the text at the, uh, at the Gold Coast, Hope Reformed Baptist Church, quick shout out. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, we worked through this a couple of weeks ago, and I thought that this would be an awesome topic to go through now with you guys. First John chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, not to be confused with obviously the Gospel of John. And we'll have a little bit of a chat about it beforehand. What I've loved so far to unpack about uh, 1 John with the crew down there is just the, the, the sheer quality of the pastoral advice that has been coming through the text. If there's anything I've loved about it so far, it's just the quality of the application of the truths of Scripture with, which John has so clearly loved to do so far. John uh, is worth mentioning as we open up, definitely has a, a, a particular style of writing in his letters. He's very circular in his reasoning. He doesn't get from A to B quite as quickly as perhaps Paul does. Um, he's sort of circular. He'll repeat and labor on a point. He doesn't make it very clear. He explains things in a lot of riddles that we need to then figure out. If you've ever uh, sat under a, a Bible study by Pastor Keith, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, where he, he's not very openly clear. You kind of have to use Emma as a bit of a translator, and then eventually you get to the, the point that he's trying to land, or the plane that he's trying to land, as sometimes he will describe. So this is John. He's, he's pastoral in his style. He wants to see his audience grow in holiness, and he wants to see them take on the world. The known world at the time is, uh, is really beating against the church, beating against what we would uh, describe as the audience of this letter, particularly uh, Ephesus and uh, other churches around Asia Minor. Um, John, at this stage, is uh, no doubt speaking as one who has seen it all. He would have been old and weary at this age of writing this letter. He lived through all of his friends getting slaughtered for the gospel. He, uh, he even saw Jesus get slaughtered at the cross, and he's still kicking. He's still expounding upon theological concepts. He's still dishing out helpful pastoral advice, and he's still being used by God in his old age, to, to, to uh, fight the up-and-coming heretics and antichrists of the day, including what we would describe as the, uh, the early proto-gnostics of the day, preaching a, a false Christ and preaching a false gospel that cannot save. This is the sort of the, the opponents that he would have been coming up against at the time. He is literally what everyone in Ephesus at the time needed, an older, wiser, truth-proclaiming, unashamedly proclaiming the gospel man who cares for the younger generation and, 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 and knows that they need to hear this truth and knows that they need to apply this truth, and he wants them to be informed and wise. Hence, 
the, the passage here that we're about to read starts with my little children. This is him mustering up his readers to, to, to really lean in. Here, little youngins, lean in. This is what Pastor John has to say to you. And he starts off his reading like this. Let's get into it. First John chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but of the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says I know him, uh, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth of God is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. May God bless the reading of his perfect, holy, inherent word to us this evening. Amen. Amen. Okay. So this text, if you know First John very well, you'll notice that this text is circling back over an idea that John really started to unpack in chapter 1. He's looking at what, would we, what we would call the possibility and the substance of our sanctification, right? How we're made more holy in the sight of God, how we're made more holy by the, by the Spirit that is dwelling in us. It's the, the possibility and the substance of our holiness and our growth in Christ in order to abide in Him, like verses 3 to 6 will say. But it's from a different angle. He gives us an an indication of the purpose that he's going to write what he writes. And he says that it's so that you may not sin. He says that at the start. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This is purpose. He gives a purpose for the theology that he's teaching. And the purpose is so that you may not sin. This should be the motivation for most biblical teaching. Eternal old truths about God are cool and fancy words like propitiation and advocate and like we'll get into imputation, etc. are cool, but they are only awesome and true when you are living that reality out. Do you just say that all of these realities apply to you and live contrary to that? Or do you live out your walk with Christ based upon the things that you believe about him? Good theology And biblical teaching, a good pastor who is teaching these things, cares for his flock by teaching them theology unto something. Unto something. You learn about the marriage roles and the patriarchy, etc., unto a more godly marriage. You learn about uh, uh, the distinctions between covenant Baptist theology and all of these uh, awesome uh, uh, theological concepts unto further understanding about the gospel. How? Why? So you can preach it. It's unto something. You learn about presuppositional apologetics, unto being more effective in evangelism. There is a, there is a result as to where, why you are learning what you, a, you are learning. Paul say, uh, John says that it's so that you may not sin. Whatever it may be, good, solid, biblical, true teaching will produce in God's people a net improvement in their sanctification. Your walk with Christ is uh, greatly benefited by learning more about gospel truth, which ultimately, as the, as the theme of 1 John sort of shouts, gospel truths and learning more about them complete your joy, or they fill your joy, or you receive more of that eternal joy that Christ gives on offer. 
It completes your joy. He says that in verse 4 of chapter 1. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That is the theme of this letter. Do you want to serve your God more? Do you want to kill your sin more? Do you want to evangelize the lost? Do you want to do these things? You should want to do these things because your joy is being more and more complete. And your joy is being more and more complete because your minds are getting renewed. Because you're learning more about the cross. Because you're learning about the fact that in chapter 1, John says that this word, Jesus, was made manifest among you. This touches the doctrine of the incarnation. That God is a God of light and that in him there is no darkness at all. That's the doctrine of the goodness of God. And all of these biblical doctrines coming through, you learn these things unto something so that your joy is more complete and so that you love your God more. Today, we're renewing our minds by looking at more uh, about the, the person of Jesus and his vocation, his work. What did he actually do? What actually happened at the cross? Earlier in John, as many of you may know, in the Gospel of John, uh, John works through, again, this idea of the incarnation. He works through the fact that God is a God of light And here, we're going to be looking at the start of chapter 2 on this idea that uh, that Jesus fits these three descriptions that John gives him. He fits the description of, in verse 1, our advocate, the righteous one, who is also our propitiation. There are three offices, three uh, uh, vocations of Christ. And we'll start with the last one. We'll start in verse uh, verse 2, which talks about propitiation. Jesus is our propitiation. This is the last thing that he's named. It says that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who is Jesus. He's righteous and he's the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is a big word. It's a fancy word. It's a weird word for people who may have perhaps not understood this doctrine quite as of yet. Whether a new Christian or old Christian, this uh, word isn't really a word that's commonly used in our English vocabulary. Um, It just means appeasement and we'll get into that. But before we get into truly defining it, I think we first need to look at why it's necessary. Why is the propitiation necessary? Why did Jesus have to be this this, uh, advocate with this Father, this uh, Jesus Christ the righteous? Why did he need to be also this propitiation for our sins? First, let's look at what the definition of sin is to understand why the propitiation was so necessary. So what is sin? What is sin? Many of you have heard R.C. Sproul, he calls sin cosmic treason, right? Cosmic treason. In essence, it is the, it is the, the disobedience or the treason to the law of the most holy God of the entire cosmos, hence cosmic treason. You're committing an act of treason against the God of the entire universe and the entire cosmos. Spurgeon said it in this way. Sin is a want of conformity to the will of God. Sin is disobedience to God's command. Sin is a forgetfulness of the obligations of the relation which exists between the creature and the creator. This is the very essence of sin. Injustice to my fellow creatures is truly sin, but its essence lies in the fact that sin is against God who constituted the relation to which I have violated. It's primarily a sin against our creator, God. 
Sin can be described as the, uh, the, the turning away from God. You'll find that language in Romans chapter 3. How we are not good and we've all turned from God. His law is before us and it's written on our hearts. And what we figuratively do and literally do is turn from it. We go our own way. We make a 90 degree, 180 degree turn and we do not do his law. We cannot fulfill it. We cannot follow it. We break it. We turn from him. Romans 3 will say. It's an intentional turning from his ways, from his precepts, from his moral law, which is written on our hearts. Sin, therefore, is the highest disobedience, uh, the highest form of disobedience that there is. Therefore, what does it deserve? We think about God, and like John will say, God is a God of light, and that in him there is no darkness at all, and that in that we, we, we extrapolate and we find out about the goodness of God and the fact that he's, our, he's the perfect judge that we could ever have imagined and thought of. He is the perfect righteous one. He is perfectly good in all of his possible ways. More righteous than any human being could ever think to imagine to be. He is a good God. And so when we think of this sinning against that good God... What does this sin deserve? Infinite God, powerful God, righteous God, perfect judge. Infinite, unquenchable, unending hellfire for the sinner who offends that God. That answer is pretty simple. Infinite holy God, infinite just punishment. That is what we deserve, an unquenchable, powerful, infinite, cosmic, eternal, never-ending punishment. And this is where we find ourselves in as sinners, as ones who are this, as Spurgeon said, not wanting to conform, this being disobedient, forgetting the obligations and all that stuff he was saying. And we can't say that we're not. Because John here says in 1 John 1.10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So even that is a sin that you're, again, racking up against yourself. So you can't even say that you're not a sinner. You're in this place, and there's no way out of it. It's unconformity. It's rebellion of the highest order. Therefore, because it's so criminal, God must punish it. It must be punished. God is a God of light. 1 John 1.5, this speaks of the, the objective goodness of God. He is our standard that we have of perfect uprightness and objective goodness. There is no darkness in him at all. This makes him the most holy, perfect judge. Exodus 34.7 gives him this description. It says, God, he keeps steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression, but will by no means clear the guilty. He won't just clear the guilty. He won't just lift up the rug, sweep the sin under it, and forget about it. He doesn't just clear the guilty. Sin must be punished. If he did clear the guilty, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be light, and he would for sure have darkness in him. Because he doesn't execute perfect judgment in righteousness against sin like you would even expect a human judge to do. You think of a courtroom scenario. Someone has committed murder against your family member. The judge has every single piece of evidence that he would ever need to pin this guy for a life sentence or the electric chair or whatever it is. And yet, for whatever reason, the judge just decides, eh, it's all good. I forgive. 
we should just be a bit more forgiving. You would be outraged. You would be outraged. That is not a good judge. He's pretending to be good. That's a show of good, but that's not a good judge. By the definition of what we think of righteousness, that wasn't a righteous act. He let sin go unpunished. The guy should be in jail. And then the the victims of the family cower in fear and hope that he doesn't come for them. It needs to be punished. The murderer in the courtroom gets punished. Therefore, God must punish sin, and he does, and he does so with wrath. And this is what we would call a justified wrath. A a, a justified wrath. He has every right to be wrathful against his creation, which continually sin against him. And this is an attribute of God which is under attack today. People don't like this about God. Right? We want God to be, you know, more chill. Just relax, right? The way you're describing God to punish sin and be wrathful against it, it sounds a lot more like the Old Testament God. But now we have Jesus. He's a lot more chill, right? He came and he's a lot more chill. He, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't do anything of harm to anybody. Why are you explaining such an angry God? This Jesus, to which many will think is perhaps not as loving as the Old Testament God, or not as wrathful as the Old Testament God, is the same Jesus in Revelation, which is post-Old Testament, who warns the church of Thyatira and talks to Jezebel herself and tells her to stop pastoring that church and deceiving people, or he'll cripple her and kill her children. Revelation chapter 2. God still hates sin. Jesus hates sin. He's not any less wrathful than the God of the Old Testament is. God is immutable. He doesn't change his mind. He didn't go through puberty in the Old Testament, and for whatever reason, now he's cool, now he's chill. He's a more mature young adult now without as many hormones. He's the same God. He doesn't change. He has every right to be wrathful against sin. God still hates sin. Jesus still hates sin. Therefore, in this light, what because this sounds like pretty bad news. What theologians have concluded, a way of salvation for those who believe, come under two different methods, expiation and propitiation. And we'll explain the both of them. Expiation, it's a lot of the time confused with propitiation, but there is a small distinction which needs to be made clear so that we can better understand what exactly happened at the cross. Expiation is the act of Christ's work accomplishing an atonement for sins. That results in our propitiation. You need the two, and you need to explain the the distinction between the two to really get at the bottom of what exactly happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus died for us. And to understand how Jesus is our propitiation. Jesus placated the wrath of God by dying an atoning death for our sin, and this is exactly what we mean when we say things like, Jesus died for us. Yeah, Jesus died for us, but what do you mean by that? This is why we're renewing our minds, so that we can answer that question. How did he die for us? Why did he die for us? Our sin, it deserved an infinite punishment, and Jesus, being both fully God and fully man, paid that punishment on the cross for us. Being fully God, he extinguished the infinite amount of wrath necessary so that we can be debt-free. And being fully man, he really did, in fact, live a perfect life and did really die for us as a man, thus securing his office as mediator for us. Hebrews 2.17, you can turn to there if you want. Hebrews 2.17. It says, Therefore, 
He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There's that word again. He had to be made like his brothers so that he could die an atoning death for our sins. That's expiation. Propitiation is the result. Another word for propitiation may be the word that we would use for appeasing, appeasing the wrath of God or placating the wrath of God. That's propitiation. Really, it's the result of the atonement. It's the result of the atonement. Our sin, it's imputed to Christ. God punishes that sin in Jesus accordingly. And to us, we're given an infinite righteousness. More on that later on when we talk about Jesus the righteous. This was to show forth God's infinite righteousness. Again, God is the God of light. He must punish sin. Therefore, that sin is given to Jesus. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug. It's given to Jesus and then condemned in Jesus justly so that God doesn't lose on his title of being perfectly righteous and perfectly good, the God of light who has no darkness in him at all. That sin that, is, that, that uh, we incur against ourselves is still punished, but it's punished in Jesus. Jesus died for it, so we don't have to go to hell for the rest of eternity. He doesn't just sweep sin under the rug and let it go unpunished. This would make him an unjust God. Turn to Romans 3. Romans 3 verse 23. It says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We get that. We're sinners. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Cool. But what happened to make that a reality? Why is that true? Paul explains. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. There's that word again. By his blood to be received by faith. Why? Why did he do that? Why did he need to do that? Some reconstructionist, uh, deconstructionist, etc., will come up with the theology that that is cosmic child abuse. You can't have that. That sounds like an angry God that's just punishing his son for no reason. Why does that need to happen? Continue in the text. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As John will say as well, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He forgives us, uh, he justifies us on the basis of never losing out on his justice. That sin is still punished. You have one or two options. Option number one, you die in Adam and you spend the rest of eternity in hell suffering the condemnation for your sin. God is still just. God is still righteous. You, you're getting what you deserve. Option number two, you bow at the knees of the cross and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He's your new covenant head. He's your mediator between uh, you and God. And thus, when you die in Jesus, are those, still, are those sins still punished? Yes, they are. God doesn't skip out on his justice all of a sudden. Those sins are still punished. But they were punished 2,000 years ago. They were punished at the cross so that you can be made free, so that when you die, you don't have to live out an eternity in hell for the, for the sins that you have committed against a holy God. Rather, Jesus took the brunt of that at the cross. This is what we mean when we say he died for our sins. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. This is important data, right? As John will say, this completes our joy, that God in his infinite righteousness who hates sin still provides a way for the sinner to inherit eternal life. 
Thus, thus, this is the only gospel that can save. You can't have it any other way. You can't preach a different gospel. You forego or you compromise or you yield something along the way when you preach a different gospel, right? Whether it's the goodness of God, whether it's his perfect holy righteousness, whether it's the incarnation, whatever it may be, when you preach a different gospel, you lose something of substance in this entire message that John is proclaiming. He's either our propitiation or he's not. This is the gospel that we preach. This comes under the banner of what we would call penal substitutionary atonement. This involves uh, Jesus becoming sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the the righteousness of God. Jesus pays the penalty due for bearing that sin. He placates the wrath of God, the wrath that God had towards his elect by dying on the cross for that sin. Therefore, he's the propitiation who has our sin imputed to him. So, we're still going. We're only in half of one verse. But there's a lot of terms that we're working with here. We're talking about sin. We're talking about expiation. We're talking about propitiation. I mentioned imputation. Penal substitutionary atonement. Is your joy being complete yet? This is, this is, this is John's pastoral dishing out of theological advice. We're still only in the half of one verse. Let's go back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. The second half of that verse. This is worth mentioning. He says he's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but of the sins of the whole world. Uh Uh-oh. What does the Calvinist do now? Right? This seems like an issue all of a sudden. He's not only the propitiation for our sins, but of the sins of the whole world. Right? This attacks the whole idea of limited atonement, the L in tulip that Jesus died for his sheep, and only his sheep. John says, he didn't die for our sins only, but of the sins of the whole world. And then the Arminian smirks, right? The debate's over. Calvinist goes home and cries himself to sleep, apparently. How do you argue with that? It's actually quite simple. If propitiation means what propitiation means, and world in that verse means every single individual who has ever lived, well, then everyone goes to heaven. And well done, you're a heretic now, you're a universalist, and you run into another issue. It's as simple as that. If it means every individual, everyone has everything that we've been talking about so far applied to them. Therefore, church doesn't matter. I don't know why you're all here. Preaching doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't matter. Nothing matters if that's true. Because everyone goes to heaven anyway. So, it must not mean every single individual who has ever lived. If world means everyone, then Jesus paid the debt for everyone. Hence, since it doesn't mean every individual, as elsewhere in Scripture will describe, that Jesus only died for his sheep. John 10, 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. You guys should know that. The sheep. World in this sense and in many other areas of scripture does not mean every single individual in the world who has ever lived. John 3.16 is another example of that. What is meant here is that Jesus didn't just die for the audience who are reading 1 John. 
You've got self-righteous Jews in the church who have believed for centuries that, that God's promises is only for them. And all of a sudden they're hit with this gospel where now Gentiles are being included into the mix. This statement needs to be made all the more clear to those Jews. He didn't just die for you. And Ephesus, he didn't just die for you guys either. Go out and evangelize to more because he's died for other people too. We don't know who they are, but he's died for them too. In 316, it's the same reality. In Ephesus and in Jerusalem and in many other cities that have a high Jewish population, this truth that Jesus died for the world needs to be made all the more clear to them. Their whole system of thinking for centuries was that they were the people of God, they were the sheep of God, they were particularly unique. And in the, cov- the new covenant, we, uh, we have this reality now that Gentiles are included. Other nations are included. People from Uh, Ephesus are included. People in Greece and other areas of the Mediterranean are included. Australians are included. Even people from the Gold Coast, they're included. Some of them. Remnant. A small remnant. The, the, The promise of salvation now extends far greater than the nation of Israel. Other people geographically around the world have their sins paid for as well. Not all of them, not every individual, But some individuals throughout the world have their sins paid for, and self-righteous Jews in the first century needed that truth told. Let's look at Jesus' second title that he's given. He is given the title of Jesus as the righteous one. In verse 1, Jesus is righteous. This covers the, the second aspect of what we would call the doctrine of imputation, because it is double imputation. 2 Corinthians 5.21, yet again, which I mentioned earlier, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then John here calls Jesus, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus really did knew no sin. He didn't know sin. He was not a sinner. He had not committed sin. He was perfectly righteous. He was the only one who ever lived on this world that gave a perfect moral upkeep of God's law. Not only in the sense that he didn't break a law, not only just in that sense, but he also knew every single one of the laws in their fullness more than we could ever know. And he also indefinitely fulfilled the law as he is what uh, Corinthians will say, the righteousness of God. He's God in flesh. He is infinitely, positively righteous. He didn't just not sin, making him neutral, but he's positively and infinitely righteous. He wasn't just neutral. He displayed an infinite righteousness in keeping the law, uh, and he kept the law to an infinite standard as only God could, meaning that he wasn't just like neutral Adam before he sinned. He was better than Adam in every respect. But rather, him being God, he was infinitely righteous here on earth. He indefinitely fulfilled the law, making him what John would describe as Jesus Christ the righteous. Turn your Bibles now to Romans chapter 8, verses 3. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is the doctrine of double imputation. Our sin 
and the guilt that we incur against God is imputed, and that's another word for transferred, like a bank transfer, like you're transferring funds from one account to the other. The sin and the guilt with it is then imputed to Jesus. Thus, he took upon the cross, taking onto himself the sin of the elect. And God justly condemns that sin on the cross for us. This is how he knew no sin and yet was made sin. That's the doctrine of imputation. He was made sin, as Paul says. Is Jesus infinitely righteous? Yes. But was the guilt of man imputed to him? Yes, it was. Jesus, at, the, at that time, was made sin, and God punished him accordingly, so that, good news of that second, uh, that second half of that Corinthians verse, so that we may become the righteousness of God. That's the double imputation. He is given our sin, and we get his infinite righteousness, which is the righteousness of God described. The unrighteous one is justified. The righteous one is condemned. We are given then the clothing of righteousness that Jesus had. That life that he lived in perfection is then accredited to us when we believe. And this is how we can then say in Romans 8 verse 1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is there to condemn? There's nothing to condemn. Our sin's gone. Our sin's been punished already. There is no condemnation for the one who believes in that reality. Thirdly, what is Jesus described as? Our advocate. He is our advocate. It says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is an advocate. In the Greek, this is the, the, the parakletos, which is often uh, uh, described as the, the Holy Spirit. But it just refers to a helper, an intercessor, one who can mediate but it's also described as somewhat of a, a lawyer, like a lawyer of a defendant, like someone who is being condemned and he comes alongside them and pleads their case for them. This is, what, this is the role of the advocate. This is the role that Jesus plays and the role that John here is describing. He is like the lawyer of a, a defendant who comes alongside and pleads that person's case. We have nothing to bring. We have no righteousness to offer. We can't impress God by any means. And yet, Jesus still chooses to be our advocate. It can be described most helpfully in perhaps a courtroom scenario. And this is by no means uh, a direct link on like, how exactly the mechanics of our salvation works out. But it's a helpful illustration to understand how he's our advocate. You think of a courtroom and you think of, you think of Satan, who often in Scripture is described as an accuser. So he could be the police prosecutor. He's condemning the criminal and he's bringing charges against him. We are the defendant and Jesus is our lawyer or advocate. Satan is doing what he does best and doing what he has always ever done in our lives. And he is accusing us in that courtroom. He is bringing charges against God's people. He's evil, he's rotten, she has a murderous mind, he has lustful intentions, that, that person there has a life of sin. At one time, she didn't even love you, God. He was an enemy of you, Father. She followed the desires of her flesh. He was hostile in mind, and together they were born as children of wrath. They hate you, God. Our advocate, Jesus, the righteous, turns and looks at us and says, yeah, you're right. You're right. You know what? They did hate me. 
They cursed me all the time. When she was a flaming atheist, she cursed me all the time. She used my, my name in vain. That person there, yeah, he was a child of wrath. They did really hate me. But you know what? Although they were dead, I made them alive. They're alive now. I wiped away their rottenness. I changed the desires of their flesh and put a new heart in them. Yeah, Satan, they were enemies of God, but they love God now. And the debt that they incurred along the way of sinning against me, I wiped it all away at the cross. I paid their debt. You're looking to accuse them. When I turn around and look at my defendant, I see an infinite account of righteousness of which I provided for them. This is Jesus, our advocate. Calvin once said that Christ's intercession, or his advocacy, is the continual application of his death to our salvation. This is what Jesus is constantly doing. One commentator said, thus the father's provision for the sinning Christian is his son who possesses a threefold qualification, his righteous character, his propitiatory death, and his heavenly advocacy. And each one of these offices depends on one another. He couldn't be our advocate if our sins weren't paid for. So if he wasn't the one who propitiated our sin, how could he be our advocate? And he couldn't have paid for our sin if he had sin of his own to deal with. Therefore, he must be the righteous one. He is the righteous, propitiating advocate. Each one of these offices depends on one another. And this is the Jesus that we serve. This is the Jesus who has saved us. And as we read verses 3 to 6, we see this in application. Verse 6, uh, verse 3 to 6 in uh, 1 John 2. It says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he's in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This has been the, the theme. This is the, this is the theme of the, the last three verses that we're going to walk through in this. this. This living consistently with the reality that Jesus really is our propitiating righteous one who is also our advocate. Do you live like that reality is true for you? Do you live consistently with your worldview that you are presupposing? That old saying, and it's a pretty cringy saying, but that old saying of actions speak louder than words, right? But it's never been more applicable here. Do you just say and confess all of these beautiful realities about Jesus? Or do you say and confess those things, but also live them out? Or do you live like you walk in darkness? Do you live like none of that is a reality for you? This is the crux of where he's getting at. Don't say or pretend that all of this is a reality for you when your actions show that you have not sought after Jesus as an advocate, you don't care about his righteousness, and you deny the fact that he's a propitiator with your life, with your actions, with, which the, with, with the way you live. Be the one, or don't be the one in verse 4, who say that you know him and yet don't keep his commandments. Don't be that guy. But rather, be the one who in verse 5 is the one who keeps this word, and in that individual, the love of God is perfected. And, and these sort of commandments and these keeping of the commandments isn't some weird, ambiguous, legalistic list of 
of uh, outward self-righteousness. That's not what he means. This is not some outward show of legalism like dietary requirements or legalism surrounding the Sabbath or other uh, shows of self-righteousness. That's not what he means. He means a life that is dedicated to Jesus, that lives to be more like him by way of sanctification, putting your sin to death, cutting out the desires of life so that you can live more holy, so that you can live looking more like Jesus. This is a life that seeks to serve Jesus' church, seeks to glorify him in your, in your families and family worship, etc., seeks to glorify him in your workplace and worship him in everything that you do because he's your advocate, propitiating, righteous one. Do you live like that's true? But of course, as verse 6 says, if you don't abide in him, if you haven't even gotten past that first step, then you're still in your sins. None of this applies to you. There is no point trying to strive to be more like Jesus and be more righteous if you haven't accepted the reality of this propitiating righteous one. You haven't even crossed the first step. If you are still in your sins, you don't have an advocate, your sins have not been propitiated, and Jesus the righteous is only Jesus the righteous to you because he'll righteously condemn you because he's the judge of all. That's the only way he relates to you as Jesus the righteous. Don't be in that category. If you have not yet bent your knee to Christ and accepted the truth of the gospel and everything that we've been talking tonight, then you need to do that now. Don't fall into the trap of the lies that that the world tells you and the desires of your life and exchange the truth of Jesus for a lie because you think that that's better for you. Jesus can free you from your sin and and he can also be your advocate. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Jesus in whom we worship. We thank you for this true Jesus in whom we confess. We thank you for these three offices that Jesus fulfilled as our righteous, propitiating advocate who continually pleads our case for us. And we know, Lord, that we cannot bring any righteousness to the table. We cannot bring anything to you. All our righteousness are filthy rags before you. And we know that we can only confide in the true righteous one, the one who had the righteousness of God, the one who can then uh, have, have our sins have paid for 2,000 years ago at the cross, if this reality is true for us, Lord, we thank you for this Jesus. Lord, we thank you that we can now sing to him and sing the, the glories of the gospel together in unity and sing the glories of what it means that he truly did die for our sins. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.